0: Byheart.com slash podcast with code DIJFY for a limited time. That's byheart.com slash podcast and code DIJFY, short for Didn't I Just Feed You? Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at HashterRenew.com.
1: Yes, you can still be an environmentalist and eat meat. My question is the fact of like, asking people to either reduce it or asking themselves, like, what would make you want to really divest from eating industrial meat?
0: Welcome to Didn't I Just Feed You, a podcast about feeding
2: kids. Hi, I'm Megan. And I'm Stacy. Hey, guys, before we get into today's episode, don't forget to subscribe right where you're listening. And if you find yourself with an extra, I don't know, 30 seconds or so, maybe 45, 45 because <laughs> we want you to say a lot of good stuff, leave us a rating and review. Those ratings help other busy home cooks discover us and we are here to serve.
0: We have our together this year because we have an Earth Day-centric <laughs> episode. It's been a minute. Was I feel like it was like two years ago when we had Row of Brown Kids on to talk about her jar method and where environmentalism reaches intersectionality. And this year we have like I think a super special guest in Isaiah Hernandez of Queer Brown Vegan to talk to us. Stacy, your kids are older than mine. Are you getting Earth Day paperwork lessons stuff coming no. home? Are they like too old for that now?
2: No, they're a little too old for that. Um, but I have to tell you that I have caught my teen getting really sloppy. Where, like, I've seen, <laughs> like, plastic bottles, like, really obvious stuff. Yeah. Like, a plastic water bottle that's empty and rinsed. Like, there's nothing you have to do in the garbage. Oh, and no. I, yeah, I pull it out and I leave it outside his door. Because I'm like, this is the least you can do. Like, are you, yeah. like, for real? Like, we, of all people, have the time and the resources. You, of all people, you're a teenager who has remote school. Like, <laughs> You no can excuses can rinse your stuff. You have no yeah. excuses. So um, I, find, I find that really funny that there's been this kind of switch. I think it's just what comes with being a 14-year-old who's been home, stuck with your parents for a year, and just being, like, blase and tired of everything. Yeah. I say that kind of jokingly, but also not, because <laughs> it's been really, <laughs> really hard on a lot of teens and tweens. At this point, they're kind of hitting a
0: wall. Have been oh, yeah. for a while, aren't we all? Yeah, yeah.
2: But no, we're kind of over that. But I do think that that pattern that happens a lot in lower schools is why maybe we haven't always done like an Earth Day episode because, just like everything else, we really hope to integrate thinking about the environment, thinking about being inclusive. Thinking about all different types of foods, all different types of family structures, and having that be present in our content all year round. Sometimes these, like, it's Earth Day holiday, it's the one day a year. We're gonna talk about the
0: environment, feels trite or something. It does. And as we learned from Isaiah, it's not just it's all, it's not all like recycling. Right. And we're not touching on that enough around Earth Day in April or the rest of the year. And so it's really important for us to, like, continue to have these conversations. And one thing I think is really cool I've been really excited about is that we are having lots more episodes this year that are about veganism and vegetarianism. And we're including, like, a lot of voices in that. And I think that that is a form of environmental education that we're just not – we're not trying to be like, "Hey, this is an environmentalist episode." And so it feels good. It feels less pressure too, because I think there is so much pressure put on parents, especially like upper middle class parents, that like it's about what we do that has the biggest impact when actually it's about creating change at a very base level and also at a very high level, like changing the access to recycling in your community. Yeah.
2: and at the same time, if we're saying we feel pressure yes. think about how that trickles down to people who Don't don't feel the the pressure exactly. Don't feel the pressure to like know which number goes in the recycling bin appropriately and to rinse it, but like don't even have access to recycling and the feelings and the emotions that come with that and how the cultural conversation makes you feel about what kind of parent you are even capable of being when no one's even giving you tools. So you know it's really complicated. But spoiler alert: right before you introduce Isaiah, is that. The main takeaway doesn't cost anything or yes. even take up that much extra time.
0: So I and think like maybe that's you should profound. be doing it anyways. You yes. might already be doing it anyways. Yes.
2: So go ahead. <laughs> Tell us about
0: Isaiah. Yes. Isaiah Hernandez is an environmental educator and creator of Queer Brown Vegan, where he creates introductory forms of environmentalism through colorful graphics, illustrations, and videos. Hey, that sounds kid-friendly. He seeks to provide a safe space for like-minded environmentalists to advance the discourse around the climate crisis. All right, Isaias, can you speak to us about intersectional environmentalism and what that means to you?
1: Yeah, so intersectional environmentalism was coined by Leah Thomas, the founder of intersectional environmentalists, and she basically described it as a way that an inclusive form of environmentalism that advocates for the people on the planet, most especially black indigenous people of color communities. And so she referenced uh, intersectionality that was coined by Kimberly Crenshaw through the legal lens of how she described the experiences of black women specifically being oppressed by a lot of systems in the United States. But with me, I think when I think about intersectional environmentalism, I think about it through an interconnected lens that says, um, you know, we cannot liberate ourselves from this ecological crisis without our community. And so that recognizes that each community member has a specific role in this movement, whether it be an educator, artist, photographer, podcaster, writer, poet, that we all f- understand fundamentally that. It costs zero dollars to advocate for human rights in this movement and to recognize the injustices that um, have been happening for decades in history in the United States.
2: What I love about this idea of intersectional environmentalism is that it's inclusive. You know, you're talking to two, you know, middle, upper middle class white ladies and <laughs> for better uh, you know, or worse. Call, call it like it is, you know, and you know, there is something that each of us can do. And it's also very important for each of us to realize that we have been fed a narrative and pick the one that suits us. The narrative for us as, you know, white upper middle-class moms is you can recycle. You can take all the plastic in your kitchen and get rid of it. It's so unhealthy for your kids. And, you know, one, those aren't actions that are available to all families. Mm -hmm. Therefore, they should not be lifted as the answer. And two, I also think what ends up happening is we end up internalizing as individuals what we can and cannot do. You know, for me and Megan, that's a lot of pressure it's overwhelming to think of making some of the changes for other parents who do, don't even have the resources. Forget about it. If it's overwhelming for us, it's off the charts. When it seems to me that the real answer is for all of us to be finding respectful ways to work together to ask the system to change. So I don't know. I'm curious, just your thoughts on on that perspective. and And is that Is that a productive way to be thinking about it from where you sit? Yeah.
1: I mean, I think that a lot of us um, can extend ourselves from that individual change to local change and then system change. So I think for me, one of the most easiest things that I always tell any type of parent and any individual is learning about history costs zero dollars. I have never really seen anyone.
2: Yes.
1: Die about learning about racism, colonialism, slavery. Although it is introduced in many K through 12 educational systems, it's almost seen as an uncomfortable topic for many educators. And so I think that in order to reckon with this problematic history that has um, really continuously inflicted a lot of harm, especially within Black Indigenous groups, is to recognize our own internalized biases that we carry. And so I think Um, these conversations are the most easiest when it's with your family members, because you're more comfortable. um, And through a lens of love, you're able to approach them rather than trying to approach a random stranger that you don't know, or trying to have someone question you about your history or what you know. So I think starting off with your kids and your family is super, super important.
2: This idea of a lens of love is such a it resonates with me really strongly because I think as white parents, sometimes we get so caught up in not wanting to talk about it unless we think we can talk about it correctly with mm-hmm. quotes, as opposed to coming from just a place of honesty and love and saying, yeah, I, I don't know. I'm just waking up to a lot of this right now. Like, Let's learn. Let's, you know, let's dig in. And then also modeling this, we have to do the work. We have to educate ourselves. We have to go find the resources. And kids love to learn, Mm -hmm. especially in a loving environment that we have the power to create. You know, kids don't learn as well in an environment where everybody's uptight about getting the quote unquote right answer. So, you know, I don't mean to be all love and light because it's way Mm -hmm. more than that. And we do have work to do to to understand and to get some things right. But it's okay to come from a place of, you know, starting with love and not starting with the answers necessarily.
1: Exactly. And I think it's about being ready to be wrong than to be right, because I think that when you have that mindset you're willing to grow and listen rather than always being like, I need to be right. Or if not, then people will see me um, as problematic. But that's not the real thing when all of us have mistakes and biases and we're all unlearning throughout this process.
2: Okay, so our audience loves these big thoughts and conversations but (laughs) they also love when we get down to brass tacks. So there are certain... I don't know. Would you call them issues, Megan? Like certain things that just come up all the time when you're a parent and you're talking about environmentalism and Earth Day, which is coming up.
0: Yeah. I want to call it propaganda. Like yeah. all of our kids are going to come home being like, we need to recycle more yes. in the next couple of weeks. And I'm not wholly convinced that that's actually the place for us to all be starting. Um, like Isaiah said, starting with conversations and learning about history are probably a lot more important. Um, But I think we should talk about some of the perceptions around what we're told, like what food media and media in general tells parents that they should be doing and whether those things are actually like accessible. And if they're true, for one example, there's like a, a perception that being environmentally friendly or eating and building an environmentally friendly kitchen, whether that's like switching to silicone bags from plastic or Turning to a vegetarian or vegan diet, th- there's this perception that all of that is very expensive. Do you think that's true? And what are the financial and also cultural implications of that?
1: Yeah, that's such an interesting question. So, I actually used to work at a zero waste store here in New York, and a lot of our customers actually were uh, middle aged white mothers generally. And so, I remember um, getting asked, like, do you think that it's expensive to be eco-friendly? And I think the idea is that the lifestyle movement on media has portrayed this lifestyle to be really great. But in reality, if you really want to copy that same aesthetic that, you know, the glass jars with these products, it does add up. Um, However, I think it's also important to note that many of the products that are designed that are zero waste are pretty much new to the market, which means that you're not going to have the same experiences you've had with your plastic products you may not really get the same scent or what you're looking for in the fragrance of the product or three the product may break easily this is because it's just not as sustainable as you may think and so there's this idea where i think that people are caught upon these imagery but i think that eco-friendly lifestyles are so different from each and every individual like i look at myself growing up as a low income individual and using plastic a lot or using my Ziploc bags. And to me, that wasn't really seen as eco-friendly, but now it is. And so I think um, when we teach our children about like zero waste or like, you know, recycling or reducing our waste, we really tell them to really use realistic images of how their homes actually look like and honor that rather than saying, oh, well, you can also reduce waste here, Um, take out your plastic trash bags and use these compostable trash bags, uh, when in reality, like we're all trying to survive in this world, but I think um, it's really important that we disrupt those images from the lifestyle movement
0: Yes. Thank you for saying that about growing up poor, because I also grew up poor with a single mom. And one of the things that used to make me cringe so much as a kid was my mom washing and reusing zip top bags. Mm -hmm. And (laughs) I always thought that was because we were poor. Right. But now that I have my own home kitchen and I have my own kids, I'm like, I just don't want to be wasteful. It's silly to like throw these bags out. It had like bread in it. Let's shake out the Mm -hmm. crumbs. And I love the idea of like just shifting the perception of it, like being about being poor or low income and more about like, oh, let's just be responsible with the resources we have instead of going out and spending money and, you know, doing damage to the environment as I'm sure happens in producing more products or different products or more aesthetically pleasing products.
2: You know what's funny to me about this conversation is that my grandmother, when she came to America, was also poor and did all those same things, you know, reusing all the different bags in different parts of the house. And I just associated it with her being, like, from the old country, is what we (laughs) Greeks say. I don't know. So when I grew up, I was like, I'm never going to do that. And to me, the association wasn't so much about, you know, finances as, like— that's old world, like I'm modern, (laughs) you know? It's funny, but what I think is important here is that those associations, I can't say that was our Instagram of the day, but like all those images, all those associations we make are how we start to define our understanding of these things and that we have an opportunity with our kids to define our actions in a context that is inclusive and environmentally friendly. Yes.
0: So I'm wondering if you can talk to us a little bit about plastic neutrality, which is a new concept to me, and recycling and what the implication of both of those are. Yeah.
1: So plastic neutrality is actually very interesting. So similarly to carbon neutrality, uh, where carbon neutrality focuses on offsetting your carbon emissions as a business. And this is generally working with like third party organizations to plant trees in different areas. With plastic neutrality, it's the amount of plastic generated by that business. And then what they do is measure it through a third-party business, generally a recycling facility, and they recover plastic waste that is then removed from that environment. So what ends up happening is this, these businesses are saying, okay, I produce 10,000 um, plastic bottles for the year for these products. I need to go offset it. So they work with the recycling facility. They capture it with local conservation organizations, they bring it back and they upcycle that plastic. The issue with that is that when you upcycle the plastic and you make it to different types of materials, they're really essentially single-use after that. Like you make it into a new product saying, like these are made from recycled plastic, but after that, they're no longer able to be recycled. So, in long-term short, the questions a lot of consumers ask: like, is this really effective? rather than just investing in um, you know, paper packaging. And it was found that in reality, businesses rather do this type of industry work because it's easier for them rather than trying to invest in all these eco-friendly packaging, which is revenue loss for them.
2: And can you talk to us about recycling? I mean, really, from your perspective, recycling is something that has just been drilled into our brains as the thing that we have to do. Mm-hmm. And- you know, I've read all these really mixed things. And I think this gets back to what I was grappling with at the top of the interview, where, you know, as the consumer, there's so much onus put on us to, you know, do our part. And it seems like even though plastic neutrality is problematic, that it is a way of putting responsibility back on corporations Mm -hmm. and shifting that away from the consumer. But I mean, what do you, from your perspective, what's the bottom line in recycling? Still very important for us to do? Is it making a difference?
1: Yeah. So I I think the recycling system here in the United States was never really designed to fix the plastic crisis. It was more of like a band-aid because during the 1960s, environmentalists were really raising awareness about plastic pollution. Um, You know, brands like Coca-Cola were at the spotlight and they still are today by Greenpeace. And What ended up happening is that many of these companies worked with the petrochemical industry to find a way that would not hurt their business within GDP growth, but also have some responsibility for consumers to kind of take action. And so they designated these recycling facilities and these bins in these cities Primarily, and kind of got them started with this idea of like, we're going to incentivize people that do this, we're going to make sure that people can recycle responsibly. And so, it, what you would say that, that it was effective when it first started because a lot of people um, were really engaging in this. But what ended up happening years later is that many companies, um, you know, the recycling design system when it comes to like PET and different numbers they are very confusing for a yes. lot of consumers. No one yes. has gotten proper education about that. Not even I do when I was a kid. And so a lot of the times people don't really look at the numbers. They don't yeah. wash their recycled plastic. And so what ends up happening is that the people that work at the waste facilities and have to process it really have to throw it away or they're like, this, this can't be recycled. Like, and this makes their job actually even more tedious. And so yeah. Um, I think the issue with recycling now is that there's just not the universal system itself is not really self-sufficient. And uh, a lot of people are kind of frustrated as consumers not knowing what to do anymore.
2: I feel that very deeply. And then it's like, you know, I, I so appreciate you bringing up how our actions impact the people who work at the recycling plants. And then also, you know, there are lots of you know, single parents, dressed out, you know, it becomes so hard to also keep track of all that for us to have to be in charge of our own education around something that the community and our city should be supporting us in. It's a bit frustrating, <laughs>
0: I watched this really great John Oliver segment maybe two weeks ago, and it was about this idea of wish cycling. And I hate to say that I'm going to assume it's like a lot of upper middle class white people who feel like they're just too busy to educate themselves about recycling in their city or in their area. And so they're trying to recycle things like umbrellas because in their mind, oh like gosh. obviously <laughs> that should be recyclable. And then it gets to the facility and it has to be thrown out. And so in a lot of, ways like the recycling facilities are having to add to trash when they would rather be pro- just processing the recyclables and making a bigger impact that way which sort of leads me into my next question because obviously we're a food podcast we have to talk a little bit about food yes. um, mm-hmm. and we've been doing a little mini series this year about eating more plant-based as families So, can you talk to us about the relationship between veganism, vegetarianism, and white supremacy?
1: Yeah, that's a very interesting conversation. So, I think that with vegetarian, um, it's generally the abstaining from eating any type of uh, meat, and so generally these people still eat dairy. Uh, Sometimes they can eat fish. Uh, They just remove themselves from eating any meat. But with veganism itself, is that the, the term itself was coined back in the uh, 1940s, I believe, by Donald Watson. And so he basically argued that it's uh, abstaining from eating any types of animals. And so what ended up happening, I think, in history is that um, many Black, Indigenous, people of color, cultures had already practiced a lot of plant-based diets or veganism. And so I think that what ends up happening is that they use this institutional definition. And so it basically argues that veganism is only about the animals. And so as myself, that I really am someone that advocates for both humans and non-human animals because it's essential in liberation. Um, The idea of white supremacy behind veganism is the fact that it does not really acknowledge the history of slavery, colonialism, and how different types of non-human animals, especially from uh, the United States, cattle, or chickens were not native to the United States or parts of Mexico. And so understanding that, yes, certain cultures did eat non-human animals already, but um, the displacement that happens is very devastating because with indigenous communities, not only were they not able to have their traditionally sourced food, they were out, they also banned foraging. And so what ends up happening in the veganism movement is that when you slowly focus on animal liberation, it almost seems as if you're trying to exclude the idea that humans are the main issue without yeah. actually understanding like, well, who created industrial meat and industrial sea fishing? Because it clearly wasn't created like pre-colonial times when you see the rise of colonization. You see the massive uh, extraction rate of natural resources. You see uh, the amount of mechanistic forms of environmentalism through industrialization. And so I think for me, the white supremacy idea is the fact that it really, for me, I like to say that because I don't think it's a human supremacist issue. Like, yes, we all do have our own reasons to contribute to the planet itself. But in reality, we need to be very specific in the language we use.
2: So bottom line, can you be an environmentalist and not be a vegan or a vegetarian for that matter? Can you eat meat and feel like you are doing your part for the environment?
1: Yeah, I think this is such a great question. I actually posted about it a few months ago and I got so much hate messages. So originally, originally before, before I went vegan, I was like, yes of course you can still be and then when I went vegan I think that first few months I was that annoying vegan and I was like no you can't but then (laughs) I switched it over because I learned more about the intersections and interconnectedness Mm -hmm. and veganism and I was like yes you can still be an environmentalist and eat meat my question is the fact of like asking people to either reduce it or asking themselves like what would make you want to really divest from eating industrial meat and industrial, you know, the sea fish, seafood industry. And so I think a lot of people can collectively agree that the current systems of how we grow our animals, the treatment of workers are very horrific. And the amount of small scale regenerative farms out there are very limited to a lot of communities. And so I think, you know, living in New Jersey myself, I I don't really know that much of the landscape of the farmers that are here, but I think that for me, yes, you can because not everyone starts off being vegan or, you know, we don't really have these perfectionism values that we carry. So I would hope that people recognize that they can hopefully extend themselves to remove parts of non-human animals in their food, because I don't really know anyone who eats meat sometimes throughout the week. So that is something that I always advocate for.
2: So that's a great practical shift that families can make, try to reduce their meat intake and or be more aware of where their meat comes from, if that's something that's available to families. What are some other practical shifts that you think people can make to be more earth friendly?
1: Yeah, I think when specifically looking into the food you eat, it's also locally so there's this thing called locavores where you're only eating the types of foods that are available based off your bioregion and so in the new i think in new york they have union square farmers markets and so they sell a lot of different types of produce out there that are based off that season and the bioregion so i would recommend that Other ways to reduce it or to learn more about being more sustainable is asking where your food comes from and also supporting small-owned farmer businesses, because the biggest issue with small-owned farmer businesses is that they lack funding and it takes a lot of work to grow food.
2: And Isaiah, before we log off, I want to know, is there a question that we haven't asked that you wish we had asked, or is there something that you really... Would like an opportunity to say or share?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think I would, I always say to people is that being an imperfect environmentalist makes you a better environmentalist because I think in reality social media holds these types of illusions that are inorganic, and so when we value those imperfections and flaws in our own lifestyle. We become more natural and organic in the way that we want to produce work, in the way that we motivate ourselves, in the way that we empower each other. So definitely, I really tell people that be honest with your mistakes, but do not push yourself too much down. Because in reality, I've never met an environmentalist that is 100% perfect, and I don't think that exists in this world.
0: Yes, that's such a beautiful thought to end with. And I think really encouraging too, because as parents, we're so judgmental of ourselves and how we show up because we feel like we have this huge impact on the next generation. And the more tender we can be with ourselves and imperfect we can be, the better it is actually for our families too.
1: Definitely. I think that Especially when it comes with families, like we're all trying our best, like we want our children to have the best versions, the best lifestyles that they can have. And so we sometimes forget that throughout this process that we really don't want them to hold, into, hold on to these flaws that we carried as parents. It's super important that we allow them to make their own mistakes, let, let yes. them define their own flaws.
0: I yes. love that. Isaiah, thank you so much for spending time with us today. I think we both found you via Instagram, but where else can our listeners find you and learn more from you?
1: Yeah, definitely. So I am at QueerBrownVegan on any type of social from Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, Facebook. And you can find out more resources at QueerBrownVegan.com where I just post a lot of educational resources for those just trying to understand the environmental movement.
2: We so appreciate it and hope that everyone goes and follows you. You're one of my favorite Instagram follows. I just gotta tell you. Um, so I hope everybody <laughs> oh. who's listening goes and follows you as well. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you so much again.
2: Okay, so Megan, I really wasn't kidding or like you know blowing smoke when I said that Isaiah is one of my favorite Instagram follows partly because I've learned so much from him. He's obviously incredibly smart, and he just has a real knack for using social media in a way that I think is really powerful, where he can, he finds a way to simplify but without pandering yes it's really really great so I hope everybody follows I don't know what's your takeaway like what is it this year I remember when we were done speaking with row of brown kids it was like we're gonna try to reduce plastic and I'm gonna try to make everything
0: in my kitchen glass I I actually really remember that my big thing was like using less paper towels, yes. which I have done. I feel like I'm still not Me too. not using paper towels, Correct. but I'm using them <laughs> a lot less and that feels like plenty. This year, I mean, I think I've talked about this recent in a recent like what we're cooking and eating now is like we are just eating less meat, which is like a cost slash health slash everything kind of thing. Like, we're maybe eating meat once or twice a week instead of, like, having a vegetarian night or a vegan night once or twice a week. We've kind of flipped the script. And I want to continue to explore, and this will happen a lot more when we're, like, settled in Tennessee. Like where we source our meat from. I feel like I haven't been great about that. And I just, I love the idea of it being more local to us and the like financial and community impacts that those, that that kind of like consumerism can have.
2: What about you? Yeah, you know it's funny. I this could be a whole other episode. I'm I'm like hesitant to even say it, but I'm going to, and then we're gonna put it away. Okay. I watched <laughs> that C. Spiracy oh, documentary on yeah. Netflix, right? So yeah, if you guys <laughs> have seen anything on social media about this, you understand why we're putting it away. It has caused so much controversy. But that was, you know, every once in a while, it's easy to slip into different habits. And that's okay. Like Isaiah said, we don't have to be perfect. And everybody, we have just had such a crazy, difficult, challenging year. And actually, how we've been able to source our food was really directly impacted. Right. So, you know, I think we have to be kind to ourselves, but we definitely fell into eating a lot more meat. And watching that movie made me thoughtful about just going back to... Not just eating less, but changing our mindset around what meat means to our eating and to our meals yeah. and making it a little bit less of a central focus because I also have gone back to using a service instead of like the main Instead of the conventional grocery delivery service, which I'm using for little things here and there, I've gone to, I think it's called Farm to People, is this delivery service that I'm using. But it's crazy expensive. So... It is, and Which, I think for Stacey I don't know. to say that,
0: I'm like, oh, okay. What? Well, I'm just kidding. I mean, it's I'm giving you a hard time, Phyllis. Can we link to it? Because it's yeah, New York-centric. Okay. I,
2: I don't know if it's New York-centric, but it's really expensive, and it's you know every meat that you get, you know exactly what farm it comes from, but you get a smaller amount for more money which is what happens. I mean, you're saying you want to do the same thing in Tennessee. The truth is you start to buy from those smaller farms. It's important to pay more because you're supporting a farmer directly. Yes. And a farmer that doesn't have other kinds of financial supports, often from the government and stuff. So then you have to figure out how to fit that into your budget. Because it is going to cost more. So I think it's important for us just to it's like Isaiah was saying, not just talking about our habits and implementing, but really thinking and talking deeply about these larger systems. like, okay, don't have a knee-jerk reaction to the fact that this bacon costs as much as it does. Just say this is the where I'm going to invest my money. I'm going to buy fewer packaged snacks or whatever it is to keep my budget in check. And also, I'm going to just use bacon as a, like, I'm going to crumble it over something. And then I only need three strips for this recipe instead of, like, the whole package being gone after one meal. So a lot of talking about mind shift stuff in my house.
0: I love that. I also really appreciated what Isaiah said about You know, these newer products that are supposed to be more environmentally friendly if we all go out and buy them and they're not fully tested and vetted and researched and then they break or they're less useful than promised. We might be making less of an impact than we think and, in fact, causing some harm. And so starting with this, like, how do I reuse what I have or keep what I have instead of having to buy new, do better with what I have is really, I think, really nice. I think it kind of relieves the pressure valve, too, to be like, oh, I need the beautiful glass jars. I need all the stasher bags and all the unpaper towels in the world. Yeah. You know what I'm going to say next, right? I do. I'm going to say I want to hear from our listeners. What are they do What are they already doing? I feel like they do it better than us.
2: <laughs> Always, every single time. So, to find our community Where you can hear what our listeners are doing and thinking and how they feel about this episode, look for Didn't I Just Feed You listeners on Facebook. And the answer to the question to join that group is Whiskey. You can also follow our page on Facebook or follow us on Instagram. We are
0: at Didn't I Just Feed You on all social. Aren't we creative? Make sure that you're subscribed to our newsletter to get an exclusive recipe plus our pick of the week every single week. You can subscribe at didn'tignjustfiji.com or follow the link in our Instagram bio. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to Didn't I Just wherever you get your podcasts so that you don't miss an episode.
2: Our music is Good Old Times by Alex Cohen provided by Jim Endo. A huge thank you as always to our editor, Samantha Gatsik. Sam, we love you. I'm Stacey.
0: And I'm Megan. Stay sane and well-fed until next week.
2: Don't forget to look for our
0: listeners group on Facebook. The answer to the question is whiskey. Whiskey? You're not allowed to drink whiskey. It's alcohol.